A reading from Colossians. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And though to him, although through and through him to reconcile to all himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's, Christ's physical body through death to present you, you, you holy in his sight without, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that I, that you have heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to kids' church. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The psalm that Rachel read for us this morning proclaims that we would learn to number our days that we would gain a heart of wisdom. There's a lot wrapped up in that saying. Lord, would you teach us to number our days that we are limited, that we are finite, that we have a limit to our days. And somehow through being able to number them, being able to count them, being able to place them out before us, that we might gain some wisdom, that we might gain a heart for knowing these things. It's an interesting psalm, too, in that the orientating principle that that Rachel read for the psalm is a little bit to, to know God's anger as well, that that might teach us to number our days. Now, perhaps this is, this is a bit of uh, a struggle for us, is that we would prefer to number our days in joy and, and excitement and in God's blessing, but it perhaps is harder to number our days when we live fully blessed lives all the time. We begin to think that that can go on forever. So what does it mean then to, to be taught to number our days? It's a bold prayer, as many of the Psalms are. They, they have this way of calling forth this way in which how are we going to live in relationship to this God? This one who, who knows the limits of our days, knows the limits of time, and yet has related to us particularly in his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is sort of 
the last Sunday in the sermon series sort of on what are we as humans? What are we as creatures? How are we to understand ourselves in the world so that we might be those who are taught to number our days, taught to number the ways in which we have time here, taught to number the ways in which we relate to God and relate to one another so that we might gain in wisdom. And wisdom, at least for me, was one of those things that wasn't emphasized as much as a way in which we flourish. I mean, obviously, there's the American ways in which we flourish. Um, uh, Money, success, fame, property. Um, There's a country song Brian and Carla reminded me of about buying dirt, Um, you know, have land. Um, uh, There's these ways in which we... Um, sort of think of how to be a human. And, and one of the things that I, I brought up in the first sermon is the, the challenge of understanding ourselves within ourselves. The most important thing in this age is that I might be authentic to myself, that I might be able to act in the ways in the world and express myself in the world in ways that are aligned with the way that I feel particularly on the inside that I'd be able to express my own inner wishes and have them received favorably in the world. Um, uh, We have some limits still on that, but it seems more and more that that is the role that we play, is to hear from others what it is that they feel and express, and then to only affirm. Now, this is one of the greatest challenges when I went... um, through my psychology classes in seminary, because the prominent way of understanding ourselves therapeutically, let's say, today, um, which has sort of triumphed over all of us, is to say that that the way that we feel something went is the truth of how it went. And so as a therapist, as, as one school of therapy, perhaps a predominant one, is when somebody comes to you and says, I need to work out this thing that happened in my life. This is the script of what I have seen and how I understand it. You cannot, um, as a therapist, unless there's properly sort of like distortion or lies coming forth even then, um, question that. Their memory is the material you have. Now for Christians, there's a difficult truth in that is that we are sinful. The memory that we have and nobody here has done this, is remembered for our benefit, is remembered in the way in which we sort of want to picture it. Not all the time. I mean, it's not every time does somebody come and sit in your room and say, you know, this is how I remember it. Oftentimes, they they can have grandiose notions of the ways in which they've acted, too, in, in bad ways. I need to work through this. And sometimes you have to question, you know, is this what you're really here for? Now, many of you have friends and, and coworkers and, and parents and children in this, that that's often the case when people come to you to sort of confess something or to bring something up, it always seems like it's something else that they want to be talking about. The point being is that we have this way in which we sort of are, are self-contained, sort of individualized, sort of isolated things, and that we have freedom to express that in the world. One of the ways in which we talked about this um, in past sermons is that that idea that society and the world and individual flourishing had a script before today. There was a way in which, so the script for me, which failed, I think this has led to lots of dissolution that we now see among people commonly called millennials, um, 
uh, is that it was go to college, you know, get good grades, finish college, you'll get a job, you'll make enough money to buy a house, to have two weeks of vacation every year, your uh, retirement will be, you know, sort of secured in that in this way. And for many in my generation, that seems to have failed. Um, uh, I'll overload it on that was you'll find your spouse in college and your marriage will be uh, flourishing and great and there'll be no problems along the way. And so often that the, or, the universe is oriented around the script in which it said this is the way in which humans flourish. That script failed, but we could think through other generations in which, um, you know, let's go back a certain number of years in which you, knew where you were to inherit your father's business. And yet Walmart came to town and put your father's grocery store out of business. Or you were to inherit um, uh, um, some mechanic business that no longer exists today, that you were to live on that land. Or that we have all these ways in which sort of life was ordered for us and we lived into that flourishing. What I think part of the challenges in the collapse of meaning today is that we have none of those left. And so what the challenge of this sermon series was, was to try and name the ways in which at least God relates to us are outside of ourselves. They are eccentric to us. They don't come from the center of us, but they come from the ways in which God relates to us. And that's a way we can understand ourselves in the world. We don't understand ourselves through our own desires and wants and all these knowledges, but we can begin to ask, what is it that God says to us, about us? How God is whom we live and move and breathe and have our being? And then how is it then we live out of that? That meaning doesn't come from within us. It's not for us to invent all the meaning. We, we, that famous Anthony Kennedy quote we used in the first sermon as well, that idea that... Um, it's for each person at the heart of liberty to come up with their own answers to the deepest truths and meanings of the world. There's only so long you can get on that path before you go, I just made all this up. Um, and then to be questioned, uh, to question, how good is it if I made it up? Now, certainly, again, I'll pick on the millennials because that's the easiest one since I'm one, is we have the delusions of like, we could make up a pretty good thing. Um, but it's still something that resides within ourselves. And so the question is then, how do we see ourselves as humans in the world? How do we see ourselves as creatures, ones who are created? How do we see ourselves whom time is not our own? Teach us to number our days. How do we understand ourselves as those who are um, estranged in multiple contexts? I remember, I think theologians have said this for long. I first learned it from Paul Tillich, but he talked about sin and this estrangement in three ways that we are estranged from others. Um, and we see that in the ways in which we um, crash into each other, um, in the ways in which violence seems to take place in the world, in the ways in which we sort of seek control in different ways. We are estranged from God. That's the most common one most of us get, but it still shows up in that, that we reach out for meaning, we reach out for the divine, we reach out for something beyond us, and yet that can be frustrating as well. And then the third one, which is that we are alienated from ourselves. This goes back to that idea of authenticity. Oftentimes, when you think you're being the most authentic, sometimes you can feel just in the back of your mind that you are kind of alienated from yourselves as you're performing this thing. 
I mean, to think if you really were doing this before every mo I don't know many people like this, but before you spoke often in, in areas, if you asked yourself, is this me being authentic? You would never really achieve anything. It would be just trying to grasp something out there if every conversation, every moment is, is the authentic me going to show up for this moment? The authentic you would quickly become something dispersed out there that's never really able to become close to you. So we have these ways in which we are alienated um, from our creaturehood. We are alienated from our um, consummation, that new creation, that day in which we long for, in which um, things will have more permanence than they have today. I think we all feel that. We all sometimes feel that there's something good about today, and we long for more fullness to that. And more often, when something is wrong, we know that something is not as it should be. Oftentimes, we're confronted with this is not as it should be. And that's a big question if you stop to think about it. Something happens to a friend, yourself, or somebody else, and your instant response is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. There's a question of where is the way it's supposed to be? Where does this feeling of that this is not just, this is not right, this is not the way in which the world should be ordered, where is that coming from? It's this longing for some place beyond this fear. And then in the ways in which we need reconciliation in the present. I just want to read this. Um, one quote from the first sermon series, because I think it proposed a question I'm going to try and answer today. Now, um, this sermon, I'm going to try and go over what we went through in the three sort of strands that make up the ways in which God relate to us, and then talk about the Imago Dei, the image of God, which in the New Testament is captured in the image of Christ. Um, if you want to know what I'm going to say there, and I might, uh, I hope not to run out of time, because we have a great blessing to do today, um, but is so often when it comes to the Imago Dei, we ask, what is it? What does it mean that all humans are created in the image of God? What I want to propose when we get to that point is, who is it? Might be a better question. It is Jesus who is the image of God. And we'll get there. <laughs> it, it, it becomes a sloppy thing today is that we all... Um, in, particularly when you learn this phrase, the image of God, in seminary or some book or whatever, it becomes your way of assigning worth to every other person. Um, it's your way of capturing that people have meaning. Um, but it doesn't quite capture that we have these distortions, that we've fallen, that we live outside of this. And what I think, what I've tried to argue is that by virtue of being created, by virtue of living on borrowed breath, as we've said, all humans have dignity and worth and value. This is God who sustains us and made us. I don't think we need that concept to do that work. The dignity that God has in making humanity um, and uh, desiring its flourishing, which it did through the law and it does through Jesus Christ, shows that humans have dignity in and of themselves. We don't need a secondary concept to load that up. And so we'll try to free that at the end of the sermon. Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. Jack and Ryan, who aren't here today, they're both in the front range, will be getting baptized that day. We'll have a short service here, and then we will go to, um, my kids call it River Park. 
Valtis. Um, uh, we'll go to Valtis. If you want to meet us at Valtis, that's fine. We'll probably be there closer to 1030. Short service here, and then we'll go to Valtis for the baptism and have a celebration. I bring that up in the sermon and before the announcements because that's a very, very important Sunday. Uh, minus being out of town, it's a great Sunday to be here to celebrate. I often, I've told Jack and Ryan this, but um, when one sinner turns and repents, it says that the angels rejoice. I think we could at least do a little bit at trying to mirror what the angels are doing when this happens. If they're celebrating, we should celebrate too. Um, so that is my call and my plea. Um, I know summer's getting here and this, that, and the other, but uh, it's beautiful. It'll be, I think the weather looks good. Um, we're going to have food. We're going to have fun. We're going to have fellowship. And we're going to baptize people into this new life and kingdom. Um, so please, please come, put it on your calendars. And what's great about that Sunday is I'm not arguing for you to come and hear me preach. <laughs> I never do that. Um, I'm arguing for you to come and to take part in this ritual initiation, this call into new life and new creation, um, this celebration that we do together, um, and it's the church's common life thing to do. Um, uh, it's one of the things that sets us apart as a community in the world is that we baptize. Um, uh, and so please, please come and do that. And the blessing today is, we'll talk about it as we get closer to that too, but anyways, God relates to us eccentrically outside of ourselves. What I've tried to say, and we'll just go to the second part, is that Scripture contains three stories about how God relates to us. Stories about God as the source of reality, uh, of all reality, other than God. God as the Father of us all. That God relates to creation um, as something that is other than it. So God is not creation, not bound in creation. Relates to it as um, something that it is other than. And also, um, because of Jesus' way of talking to that one, we call that one Father. Um, stories about God as reconciler of alienated humankind in Jesus Christ. This is where I was talking about. In the ways in which we feel estranged, God relates to us outside of us as one who reconciles us. And stories about God bringing us to consummation in eschatological life, bringing us to new creation in the Spirit. It's this bit where we say this is not as it should be, that we know that there is a future day coming when the things that are not as it should be will be gone. Um, if you don't like the ocean, the sea is one of those things, oddly. <laughs> um, uh, and you can imagine in a pre-modern world that the sea is chaotic, dangerous, stressful, um, the source of many different trials and tribulations. Um, yeah, so... Uh, the, we have these three stories. Now, I've been using this image for a while to sort of capture this, is that to think about Scripture not as one story, which often we're tempted to do or try to find, what is the one plot that makes up the whole Bible? What is the one story that's going on throughout through it? Is to think about it as three separate stories that overlap and that are dependent upon one another but are not the same. Now, one of the things is that God creates, that God redeems, and that God consummates. God brings us to new creation. God brings us to that new day. One of the things that, as I was preparing for today's sermon, was is that this, if you think about this triple helix in this way, um, our particular context, lived as human beings, is lived within this threefold relating. Our lives are meant to be understood within this threefold relating to us. 
that God has created us, that God is going to redeem us, that God is going to consummate us. So the question of what does it mean to be human is in some sense to say that we are those who live through these patterns, these stories of relating, of how God relates to us. And within these comes all sorts of different things. Um, what's next? And so these are the, I just want to put up as a quick review these three sort of ways in which we talked about these three stories. The first story is that God relates to us as Father. And I've said before, the Father relates uh, to us through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. All these are Trinitarian, but the main actor, as we would say in each of them, the primary driver of each one is named Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the first one comes from the Father, and the Father relates to us. That which is ultimate reality relates to us in our limited context and creates um, and makes creation. Um, this, I think, is one of the deepest things that I've come to sort of appreciate is that we are creatures dependent upon God's reality and lives. And one of the things that we, I often use when we get to this is I talk about that Wendell Berry quote that I think names some of the frustration that we have in this world is that the next great divide will be between those who decide to live as creatures and those who decide to live as machines. The next great divide will be between those who decide to live as creatures and those who decide to live as machines. If you can't, <laughs> that's one I think you can see coming up in the modern world in so many different ways. This temptation to live as machines. Uh, to live among machines. I mean, I, that, that's a new sort of thing is that we live in relationship to machines and uh, computers and technology, you can film whatever you want to that, in a way that never really quite um, has happened before. Um, one of my favorite writers, Matthew Crawford, has this way in which he talks about, it, for us today, is the greatest challenge is reclaiming the real. He talks about ways in which we might reclaim the real in our daily lives, um, the tangible ways in which life can get frustrating and hard, or work on things in a way that... that um, has tangibility and realness to it. Um, it's one of the things that I think about often as I live in relationship to this many-faceted way in which things just offer to do it for me. Um, yeah, to, what does it mean to reclaim the real? Um, this in the Father has this way of blessing our ordinary lives, and our uh, quotidian basically means that, our everydayness, that God has ordained and brought us into everydayness, and that is good news. Um, thinking of machines and reclaiming the rule. If you watch the show The Good Place, there's this, um, not a person, Janet. What does she always say when they say, uh, not a girl? He's like, I love you because you're a beautiful girl. And he's like, not a girl. She says it all throughout the show. She's this machine that can kind of do things for them whenever they want. Um, and at one point, for some reason, they end up in a real world where she can't do that. And she's entirely frustrated by all the limits of that. Um, she's entirely frustrated to find out that like, she just can't wish things instantly. So if they say, in, in the fake world, Janet, go get me this, she just appears with it. But she goes to another world, and they're like, Janet, will you do this for us? And she's like, now I have to walk all the way over there and come back to here and do it the way everybody else does it. Point being is that is she's welcomed into the real in an interesting way there. And many of us are beginning to be able to have Janets in our world that sometimes where it's like, oh, I have to actually go do that thing. 
Um, I actually have to go walk into that place. And uh, I mean, the classic example of this, I guess, would be the DMV, um, the torturous place that we all have to go to sometimes to do something. Um, uh, but here we flourish based on borrowed breath. Um, our breath is not our own. Um, our bodies are not our own. That we live in these places in which God has placed us, um, and they, this is borrowed in some sense. Um, we respond in faith here. And the practices that Kelsey talked about were these practices of delight, wonder, and perseverance. What does it mean to have practices of delight, of wonder, and perseverance in relationship to creation? These three, I often think of in their negative forms, help bring out what they mean in, the, in their positive ways. To have practices of delight means not to look at people or objects as just as objects of consumption, but to be able to rejoice in their created particularity themselves. Um, for those of us with children, to be able to delight in your children is not to say, I wish you were who I wanted you to be. Um, although for most of us who were children, how does that feel too, I guess, is, is to hear from someone, you're not who I wanted you to be, and it feels like delight is robbed in that instance. I mean, to delight in each other. To have wonder both at the natural world and at the people we deal with. I, th- I think that if you often look at those people closest to us, occasionally they'll do something in you that if you allowed it would provoke actual wonder within you. Um, uh, Kelly uh, has this way in which she, um, at school pickup, always finds someone to help. Not like intentionally. She often comes home and says, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm so annoyed. Somebody was locked out of their car. (laughs) Yet she took the person and drove them all the way home. Or she saw a woman whose car had broken down and she was picking up her three boys and drove them up the block. They live down here. Um, I could pause and look at wonder upon that. It's not natural. Um, It doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, When I think about Kelly, even because it's so easy to look over those things with the people we're closest to, I'm not even sure that's one of the things I would describe her as. Um, Both me and her joke on how we're not particularly kind people. Um, We will do things for you, but uh, we're not the kind disposition that you would think of in that way. But what other practicing of kindness is there in that? You can wonder about other people. And perseverance, to be able to stay in reality, to stay in relationship in that way. The Holy Spirit relates to us circumambiently and brings us to this this consummation, this new creation. Um, It's here we live on borrowed time. That time is not our own. And one of the things that, when we talked about hope last week, I remembered that, that I was often, um, is that it means that not everything needs to be done today. First, hope means, and faith and love means that we can say something. There is something to be said. There is something to be done. And yet, because we have borrowed time and we're responding in hope, it is not all to be done right now. So if we look at those practices of now, and not yet, um, if we fully think that everything needs to be realized now, that becomes a distortion. 
I think when we um, look at people who are uh, neurotic about justice in some ways, have this notion which everything needs to be realized now, and what's odd is they're willing to sacrifice almost anyone to get it realized now. This fascination of that it needs to be consummated and made in the present, and the one person who stands in the way of that is worth sacrifice so that all can have that joy. Not everything needs to be done now. And yet when we act in, in, or in the, um, that was the not yet, we have this not yet. When we have the now, we have the ability to act within it. This is where we had that uh, St. Augustine quote that hope has two daughters, anger and courage. Anger so that what isn't supposed to be won't be encouraged, um, or to, to see what isn't supposed to be encouraged to make sure it isn't. We have things to do in the present. And last week, we talked about Jesus Christ who relates among us to reconcile us in our context. That we are estranged in our daily lives from each other, ourselves, and God. And so we live by another's death. Here the context is love. And, and what he recommended we practiced is passionate love. And passionate he defined as a, a lifelong preoccupation to have a lifelong preoccupation with this love. And the practices, as we know from the New Testament, the two greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, to love your neighbor as yourself. We talked more about love of neighbor last week. What does it mean to um, love your neighbor in their legitimate, actual context? Um, as many of you have heard me say that love of neighbor means loving your actual neighbor. Um, yes, the one who doesn't mow their lawn, or whose weeds blow into your yard, or who uh, parks in your favorite parking spot. That is the one you're supposed to love, or the one in the cubicle next to you who talks too loud on their phone, um, who shares too much about their private life. I mean, I could go on. Um, uh, all those people whom we find ourselves confronted with who just frustrate us, those are the people we're supposed to love. I once supported a child through World Vision, Safizo, um, and they just took $30 on my account and it went to him. And it would have been so great to call that neighbor love. He never bugged me. He never got in my way. The two kids next to us, every time we come home and we're trying to get the kids inside, Paul, Rosie, and I feel bad telling them that they have to go inside and this, that, and the other. It's like, Safizo never did that to me. Um, I never counted Safizo as loving my neighbor. It was an easy thing to do. It was kind, I'm sure, and it went to help that community with World Vision. It's to love the people that actually are near you, that you bump up to in your daily life. The practices of love of God um, are a challenge, I think, to pray, um, to read Scripture as to hear from God, to see an active voice in it. Um, but one of the ones I often talk about is contemplation, uh, adoration. Um, to bring ourselves to contemplation and adoration of who God is for us. To sit and to um, take in those things. Um, to have um, as an attentive focus. And part of what we began the sermon series with was the idea is it is so hard to focus in today's world, which means it's so hard to maintain a co coherent self. And if it's hard to maintain a coherent self, it's hard to be human. So what does it mean to bring our passionate love, our focus, and our discipline to attending to God in some way? Not as if God needs anything from us, but to be there and to be attentive to it.
um, to who God is for us, to the one who relates to us in creation, the one who is bringing us to consummation, and the one who um, reconciled us. Because um, if, if there's a way out of, I think, the conundrum we're finding ourselves in the modern world, in which time we seem like we have infinite supply of, um, we can't learn to number our days and grow in wisdom, um, uh, that creation just seems like this uh, projection of where I can have my wants fulfilled or um, a place where I'm somehow supposed to be more authentically me as if that would be the most interesting thing to happen or in which I can't see in the ways in which we're estranged from one another. Like, if there's a way out, if we are going to find focus and renewal again, I think it will come from the practice of being attentive to God because it's hard to quantify in the modern world. It's hard to take and say it did something. It's hard to justify in some ways, not in the sense of we're all Christians, that's nice, and justify it in that way, but it's very hard to justify in a way that says... Um, you wrote in your journal today that you sp- your your timesheet that you spent 30 minutes in silence um, calling to mind the things that God has done to you calling to mind scriptures or songs calling to mind the blessings that you have calling to mind the ways in which you could mourn the context of the modern world and seem like a waste you know, what I'm trying to say, and mainly I'm trying to say it to myself, is that could be the most important thing we could do today. Um, that that's, I think, the hinge in where this can go. Because everything else can be sort of counted um, and then measured up and then divided. This needs to be done for its own sake. Um, and so... I think that's where we're drawn to. Um, If we want to find a way to reclaim our creatureliness, to see ourselves, to be able to count our days so that we may grow in wisdom, and to know how we are being saved by another's death, that would be the way to do it, I think. Um, And so often today I'll say that the church, and at least all the emails I get, wants you to be active. Um, Go and do and be the kingdom. There's a place for that. Um, But it's not surprising that that's the justification we would move towards. Um, Don't just sit there, do something. In some sense, the argument, at least for myself, is just sit there, don't do something. Um, Be with God. And that might enable us to be in different ways. um, And be in different ways that make creation meaningful. Which brings us to what is the image of God? The better question is who is the image of God? Um... And what I want to say about those three stands is who we are is to image the image of God. Now, I put it up there because Kelly was like, okay, say it again. The challenge is imaging the image of God. Christ is the image of God. And so we are called into imaging the image of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians and um, uh, or 2 Corinthians that was read for us in Colossians. Um, and this one The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age has blinded so much. That's sort of what this sermon series has been an argument about, is that we are blinded in so many ways. And so it's for us to look and see 
and displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Um, in the word of the Colossians letter, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For him, in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that everything, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace shed through the blood of his cross. Here in this image of the image of God, we see Christ as sort of the one who models that three-pattern thing, creates, redeems, consummates thing. That Christ is the one whom all things were created through. He is the one whom they are for him. In time, they shall be for him, that, that consummation thing. And he brings about that reconciliation in our context. Um, part of what Paul's answering here is that age-old question is, is there more, more, is there order to the universe? Is there goodness? Is there truth? And there were different philosophies, Stoic and, and Roman, that answered yes to that question. Paul answers yes in this hymn that played a liturgical role in the early church. Yes, and it's become a person in Jesus Christ. Yes, it's taken residency up in the world. Yes, goodness is true because of this one, and all things are meant to dwell in him. Um, all things are meant for that, shall be consummated and brought to new creation. Um, this is the one we are called to image in our daily lives, um, to ponder, um, to adore, to venerate, to look towards, um, to see all things in that. For the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Let us pray. God, our Father, you have created us and called us to live on borrowed breath. May you bring us to flourishing in that way. We learn to practice wonder, delight, and perseverance in the face of this world. Through your spirit, you have called us to live on borrowed time. We await your new creation. The fullness of things shall come through you. All things will be reconciled through you.